Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, there's two phrases that regularly get thrown at me about politics. One is that all politics is local, and the other is that you shouldn't trust opinion polls because all that really matters is votes at the ballot box. So with those two principles in mind, this week's episode is going to focus on the upcoming local elections in May. And who better to speak to about that than Colin Rawlings from the University of Plymouth? Now, many of you will know that Colin is one half of the sophological double act Rawlings and Thrasher. That's, of course, Colin and his colleague at the University of uh, Plymouth, Michael Thrasher, too. And what these guys do ahead of local elections is they produce uh, forecasts that look at by-election results in the sort of recent past and try and project what each uh, party might do in terms of seats won and lost and what that might mean for the national equivalent vote share. And on this week's show, I'll be talking to Colin a bit about how they do that, what their predictions are this time, and what that tells us about the wider political environment post-May. Also on this week's show, I'll be speaking to Leo Barassi about the latest Polling Matters Opinion Survey. Now, our survey this week focuses on what British voters expect from any hypothetical deal with the European Union, what is and isn't acceptable in terms of concessions. Now, this is going to be quite important because if you assume that there will be some concessions that need to be made, it will be interesting to see what the public um, are and are not prepared to concede. And we'll be talking a bit about that on later, later on the Today's Show. But first, to my conversation with Colin Rawlings from the University of Plymouth. I started our conversation today by asking Colin about his background in local elections research and how, how they come to the forecast that they do and what we need to know ahead of May. Sure. Well, it's really about 30-odd years ago now that Michael Thrasher and I sort of decided that there was a bit of a niche in the market. We were we were pushed in that direction by the guy who was then the editor of Local Government Chronicle who said he'd like to start covering local elections. And we realized that there were precious few data sources and so no certainly no archive of results going back into history. So what we sort of decided to do, though really it was as a, it was an iterative incremental process, was we began systematically collecting local elections. Our first local elections handbook was published in 1985, and there's been one ever since. And we've used that record of local elections really to do two things. One, to, I don't think it's too kind of big-headed to say we've sort of created a subfield of political science because, you know, without the data, people couldn't answer questions that could be legitimately asked in local elections simply because those elections are so frequent and because wards give you such a, you know, really healthy number of uh, data points, if you like. So we've done, you know, quite a lot of work on why there are variations in turnout. We've done some stuff recently that's got some attention on the fact that um, people seem to vote less readily for um, candidates who have um, foreign-sounding names without knowing anything about those candidates. That seems to be a disadvantage on the electoral, um, on the ballot paper. We've done stuff on the impact of uh, the weather and this explicitly seasonality on turnout. And that particular piece of work on seasonality was we've been able to do because the other aspect of what we have been doing again for 30 odd years is also collecting local by-elections. Now, I know that now this has become quite common across the Internet because things have become rather more easy uh, to do. Um, councils are better. They, they tweet out their results. People find out where the elections are. But if you sort of think back to those dim and distant analog days of the 1980s, it was really quite tough to get hold of 
these local by-election results week on week. Many councils treated them almost as sort of state secrets. And we'd, hmm. you know, we've got some wonderful anecdotes of ringing up um, councils and saying, oh, no, Mr. Jones is away for the weekend and he's locked it in his filing cabinet, won't be able to get hold of it till Monday, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so it's, it's all, all rather different to now where, you know, there's the various... Um, websites which sort of compete with each other on a Thursday night as to who gets the result out first, and they run all these little competitions about you know the best prediction of the week and all that kind of thing. But the, the cut long story short, the, the the building up of the this local annual local elections file and also the um, the by elections archive enabled us not only to do the academic work, which is sort of what I've been speaking about, but also then enabled for the first time really the media to be able to start talking in a systematic way without relying on information from the parties obviously sort of party pre information for the parties about who was up who was down who was defending what kind of seats who might um you know who might gain seats in the coming elections and so on and so forth and, and it's and it's that i guess which is relevant to where we've got to you know explicitly now in April 2017. Sure. And where, and where, where I guess you've ended up is you've got, you, you, you end up doing these uh, projections, don't you, ahead of um, local elections. I mean, can you explain a bit about how you arrive at those figures before we actually talk about them? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> what, excuse me, what the figures are uh, essentially based on is we look at each year's local council results in the places that have elections and we tried from then to say well these are the results in these particular authorities and of course the council election cycle varies every year um, but what would have been the result in terms of distribution share of the vote if elections had taken place across the entire country in other words what we're saying is how would everybody have voted in these local council elections if they'd had the opportunity and we use that as our baseline and the reason that we felt we needed to do something like that and, and i'd emphasize it's based on it's based on real votes in the ballot boxes people like paddy ashton are fond of um saying and the reason we did that is because it became perfectly clear again in years past that pollsters when they asked people about how they were going to vote in elections whatever they sort of phrased it around would always essentially get a local election sorry a general election result rather than local election results so they were always askew and in particular we noticed that there was a tendency to overplay the Labour Party because Labour has always had a problem in actually getting its voters to the polls so people were responding to polls to say yeah I'll vote Labour and then when the first week in May comes around they actually don't and so you'd often find that the that the national equivalent share of the vote which is what we called it from those local elections was rather different to what the polls are suggesting and it's actually the same at the moment people are quite rightly pointing out that the conservatives are doing a whole lot better and labor rather worse than they were doing four years ago when the elections this year uh, were last up um in the polls and that's absolutely right but in terms of the uh, actual council elections held in 2009 because it was the first year of the ukip surge uh, both labor and the conservatives actually rather rather underperformed and so we are using that 2009 benchmark of what we think was the national equivalent vote at that particular time and then our week-on-week -week collection of local by-elections enables us to check how those by-election results compare with the last time that that particular ward had an ordinary local election and we compare the result in that ward with the 
national equivalent vote for those ordinary local elections in whatever May it was. And as the numbers of local by-elections increases, we can, and it's a little more than averaging, but averaging is the is a um, you know fairly straight way forward way of uh, explaining it. We can come to a judgment about what the current national equivalent vote looks like based on those by-elections. And then we compare the last three or six months or whatever it is of of by-elections carefully calibrated against the national equivalent vote for the the main uh, May elections. And from that, we work out what we think the change in share of the vote for the various parties is going to be. And from that, we say, well, if that was applied across the country, these are what we think will be the gains and losses in, in council seats and indeed in councils. Sure. So just for, for the benefit of listeners, so the national equivalent uh, share of the vote that um, I think you guys have projected, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is the Conservatives on 31, which is plus five, Labour on 29, which is no change, Liberal Democrats on 22, which is plus nine, UKIP on 10, which is minus 12. So what does that tell us then about the overall national um, state of each of the parties? Because obviously, I guess the untrained eye looks at that and says Conservatives are ahead by two points. Um, well, that, that doesn't seem very much. Yes, and this is and this is where the difference between so the polling and real elections comes in to play. I think, and the you know the point about what we do is it's it's entirely independent and different from opinion polling. Is that it's based on actual real elections, and as I said, because UKIP surged onto the scene in 2013, and that was really their first year of doing well in local elections. Um, they got then a national equivalent, we calculated, of 22% of the vote, which was completely unexpected and you know, a level unheard of for a fourth party. And in doing that, although they probably cost uh, the Conservatives most in seats, one of the reasons why we think the Conservatives are going to make gains at this um, the, the coming elections in next month, um, they also had an impact on the level of support for all of the other major parties because of course you can only add up to 100% in the in the percentages which meant that both uh, the conservatives and labor were sort of shall we say undercooked in terms of their ability to turn out support at those elections um compared explicitly at the time with uh, how labor was doing in the opinion polls and now we seeing we're seeing something rather similar we have seen ukip plummet in support in local by-elections, hence they're down to 10% in our uh, judgment, which is not dissimilar to where they are in the polls, to be fair. Mm. But the party that's most benefited from that, although it's a complex situation, it's, you know, the, the, it's not simply swings from, um, from one to the other, of course, but the party that seems now to have most benefited from that and are beginning to perform as they used to do in local elections are the Liberal Democrats. So we have the Liberal Democrats up on Um, up on 22, a considerable increase on where they've been really ever since they entered the coalition um, back in 2010. And again, together with with, um, the Lib Dems and UKIP taking, what, you know, 30, 33% of the vote, and these are local elections, so independents and and others do well as well, um, again, leaves rather... Uh, a small percentage, a smallish percentage to be divided out between the Conservatives and um, and and Labour and Labour are still doing okay in some places 
in some elections. And the Conservatives are actually themselves losing ground to Liberal Democrats. And, and, you know, indeed, although you could argue this is not reflected in the opinion polls, of course, one of the, you know, there are stories of Conservative MPs having gone to the, the chief whip over recent weeks and saying, no, please don't have an election, because if you have an election, I think in my patch places where the Liberal Democrats used to do pretty well, I, I could lose my seat to the mm. Lib Dems, despite the fact that in the polls, you know, you look as if you've got a large lead over a, you know, a, a pretty sleepy Labour Party. Sure. But just to be clear, when we have the Liberal Democrats on 22%, we're not saying necessarily that they would get 22% at a general election, are we? This is about... This is no, about no, 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 this is, no, this is, this is, no, absolutely not the case. So, so the, the, whole, the whole point of what we do is... It's this kind of, it's the sort of the niche of, of local elections that we've been, that we've been focused on. And it's all to do with what is likely to happen in, in local elections. Mm. And we did it because we thought that local elections didn't necessarily speak to general elections. Obviously, they have, you know, an impact on, on the narrative and the way that politics is played out. But people vote differently. We've got evidence of that. People, you know, people who will vote happily Liberal Democrat or indeed UKIP in a local election, and they might not do so in the general election. Look at the results in 2015, when most of the country, most of England had local elections on the same day as the general election. There are plenty of places where the results are really quite different. And if you added them up, you say, well, blimey, surely Labour would have won that constituency, though the Conservatives actually did in the general election, showing that people vote differently in those two Mm. contests. So we're saying nothing about the general election. We're saying a little bit, perhaps, about the general drift of politics, which is that Uh, You know, UKIP are down and the Liberal Democrats look as if now from a very small base they may be recovering again. Mm. Uh, But um, no, it's not a general election prediction at all. Sure. So let's go through some of the um, predictions in in terms of seats. So just to recap for the listeners' benefit. So we've got Labour losing 50 seats, the Liberal Democrats uh, up 100, UKIP down 100 and the Conservatives um, up 50. Now let's unpack some of that then I guess. So I mean the big winners of the night as you've kind of alluded to uh, is the Liberal Democrats. So um, if that is borne out in, in the way the result actually goes, I mean, what, what do you think that says about their long term fortunes? Because as I think you alluded to, they are coming from a low base, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I need also to emphasise, Karen, that the, it's only England we were dealing with in, in the work that you're talking about. Sure, yeah. And this only went up to you know the end of March, and we may still um, you know, revise these figures a little bit because there's still the odd um, the odd by-election going on. But I don't think we're going to alter the the sign before the number for each party. In other words, <laughs> we expect so because there's a Lib Dems yes to win seats and and Labour and UKIP. Um, to lose them. I think, well, it says that, I mean, what has been happening in local by-elections in some places has actually been quite extraordinary, where there have been, you know, increases in Lib Dem share of the vote in the order of 30 or 40 percent compared with how they were performing the last time they contested their seats. And you can, you know, there are various explanations for this, I guess. It's, you know, it's back to their... Um, Back to their pavement politics, which you know, was really where they began to rise from after the, um, you know, after the rather acrimonious split merge, we call it what you will, in the 1980s, gradually putting together um, small areas of support and then then sort of creeping out from those areas into into neighbouring places. It may well be partly the sort of the the Richmond Park factor in the parliamentary election, where we saw the Lib Dems as 
now being something of a repository for uh, particularly um, convinced Remainers. It may also be the fact that although the Conservatives are in the lead significantly, as you suggest in the opinion polls, um, that's really a sort of, oh, blimey, they're, they're about the only people that look to be around at the moment who we could think would run a competent government at general election level, but at local election level, or indeed in our general political view, we're not that keen on them, frankly. I mean, you know, we don't think that they're doing, they don't think they're doing a particularly great job. And therefore, although we might reluctantly holding on those vote for them at a general election, uh, in local elections, perhaps we'll, you know, give those people from the Lib Dems another chance again. So it's a mix of all those kind of things. Yeah, sure. And I suppose the other the winners in your current projection, at least, would be the Conservative Party, up 50 seats. Um, is that unusual for a uh, governing party to be seeing gains like that? Yes, I mean, it, it is It is unusual. It's not, it, it's of course not unprecedented because there, you know, there can be situations where the government has just come into office. Um, you think, uh, or you know, the um, the Conservatives after the 1992 election, the, the local elections were held about five weeks after the general election, um, and they did extremely well, uh, as you might expect at the time of the Falklands, um, 1983. Um, they get Mrs. Thatcher using the local elections before the general elections, what she used to do, have local elections in May and then make a judgment on them as to whether she could go to the country in June. The Conservatives won in 1983 in sort of, you know, post-Falklands situation and when Labour um, and the, the SDP split had taken place and Labour was in danger of coming third um, in the 1983 election. So, it, so it's, not, uh, it's not unprecedented. But what, what the Conservatives have got on their side this time is that it's that whole, and this sort of, then treats to, to the UKIP case, if you like, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Mm. Um, there is a whole swathe of places, particularly counties in eastern England, all the way from Lincolnshire around to West Sussex, where UKIP did pretty well, both in terms of votes um, and in winning seats in uh, 2013. And it really doesn't look as if they have the uh, capability of winning those seats again now. And the only people who otherwise would win those seats are the Conservatives. So there's almost some, uh, there's some, there's some easy gains, if you like, from the Conservatives from the, I guess it could be saying a fallout from Brexit in a way, is that UKIP now struggling to, to find its identity and to, to, to fight very effectively on the ground. And indeed is not any longer part of the national narrative, which I think it's also needed. Um, and the Conservatives really should just, you know, should just sail into those places and, and, and pick up seats like that. It is ironic when we look at UKIP, isn't it, that they've they've achieved, I guess, everything they've ever wanted in, in Brexit. I mean, I guess the jury will be out as to whether they like the uh, version of Brexit that we end up uh, uh, living through. But it does seem like they are the big losers of the of, of May, potentially. I mean, what's behind that? I mean, you've mentioned that they're not really part of the national conversation anymore. I mean, are they finished? I mean, this is the narrative that some people like to like to push. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the I think that's the, the problem for them, because you know, although in isolated places they've had a reasonable presence on the ground, they've, they haven't really been politics from the grassroots up in the way that the Liberal Democrats have been. And I think in the way that some people in UKIP wish they had been, you know, it's been, you know, it's a cliche, I know, but it, you know, it's been very much a kind of, you know, Nigel Farage defined party. 
Um, and that was certainly behind their successes in 2013, although, again, they were concentrating in the kind of areas that, you know, that have been identified by people as sort of UKIPI areas, um, you know, the, the sort of rural areas, um, older white electorates, often, you know, quite near the East Coast and, and so on and so forth. But now there's, there seems less incentive, really, less, less reason for those people to vote uh, UKIP. And UKIP is also worth pointing out, which I, I, I'd always suspected this, but it really sort of slightly came as a shock to me when I looked at the figures, is that of the 136 or 8 or whatever it was seats that UKIP won in the English counties in uh, 2013, and we will say, we are saying in our projections, that is their baseline. Those are the seats they won in 2013. It's those seats we will judge their gains and losses now. But in actuality, a lot of those seats have already gone. 30 of them already gone of the un-38 they won because people have stood down and the by-elections have been lost, or in many cases, people have simply packed up with UKIP and are now sitting as independents or even in, or as even as conservatives and in one or two isolated cases even as Labour councillors. So in other words, you know, uh, this will be one of the great arguments that will be held on Friday and Saturday after the election. You know, how many seats did actually UKIP lose? Well, we say they're defending the 138 that they won in 2013. Others may say, well, actually, they've only got 108 sitting councillors in these places and that should be the uh, the marker. Um, but the fact that the fall has been so considerable, um, I think, you know, just really shows you uh, the, the kind of parlous situation that the party's in. It does, feel, it does feel to me like that's going to be the story afterwards, but I guess we'll wait and see. Um, let's talk about the Labour Party, because I mean, much has been written about and, and said about their uh, unprecedented uh, midterm situation, very different to what Ed Miliband faced uh, this time, wasn't it? I mean, what do you make of, of them potentially losing seats? What does that say about the Labour Party? Yeah, we said 20, 20, um, 2013 wasn't as good for the Labour Party as 2012 was, and that's what we all talked about last year, was 2012 was the, was the Miliband high watermark, and 2013, as I said earlier, the, 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 the UKIP surge um, came in and affected everybody. But Labour, no, Labour certainly, they're losing seats in by-elections, most particularly to the Lib Dems. Well, they're not, as I say, they're not doing appallingly, but these are not... These are not a good set of elections for Labour, but on the other hand, you know they've they've only got one county, Derbyshire. They'd expect really to be doing a little bit better in places like Nottinghamshire and Lancashire and Staffordshire if, you know, if they are on the up. And the, and the very fact that we're talking about them probably losing seats um, rather than gaining them, uh, you know, very much suggests that. These are not the urban areas. These are not London. That in those kind of places, the very places arguably Labour needs to to gain the kind of areas that the the Blair governments won in in the in the late 90s and and noughties in the sort of more suburban parts of England, parts of the South, parts of the Midlands. They're simply not doing simply not doing well enough to, mm. to achieve that. And I, I also say about Labour, although I was, you know, I talking about, um, so we're talking about England and our projections, one thing that I'm going to try and add later to that is, um, is Wales, of course. And in Wales, local elections are so complex, aren't they? In Wales, the comparison <laughs> year is 2012, not 2013. Although it's not, because in 
Anglesey had their elections in 2013, not 2012. But anyway, <laughs> the, the, the basic point is that in Wales, the last time the local elections were fought was actually a, a high watermark for Labour. And a place where in 2012 UKIP didn't feature on the map, I think they had two councillors elected in Wales. What has happened since then? Well, Wales... Labour has fallen back in their support in Wales as they have in other parts of the country. This not yet tested at local elections, so we'll be expecting them to lose seats in Wales. We expect perhaps UKIP might do a little bit better than they did uh, five years ago in Wales, simply because they were you know, they were not on the map then and have you know did reasonably well in the in the Welsh Assembly elections um, last year, of course. And then there's you know there's Plaid, which always slightly stands on um, Labour's shoulders in, in some of the, in, in the valleys, in, in non-general elections, um, Labour could be losing to them as well. So that, you know, you could almost see, and this is, this is not a prediction, but it's a sort of, uh, just a, a kind of a thought, you could almost see that Labour would lose um, as many or more seats in Wales than they do in England because of the, you know, because of the comparison points. Yes, and that's before we even look at uh, Scotland, of course, where you know the the benchmark there is pre SNP surge. But I know that wasn't necessarily something you looked at in 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 your no. But again, I mean, Scotland, you know, because of STV in Scotland, the 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 scope for big swings in seats is is relatively minor. So just, just so, to be clear on that, and, so that's and, a different electoral system, just for the benefit of listeners, there's a different yeah, electoral yeah, system absolutely. in yeah, Scotland. They have, they have large three or four member wards where you can vote preference, both for candidates and for parties. Um, and it produces a quasi-proportional effect in each of those wards. Um, and that, of course, means that it's very difficult for any one party to get an overall uh, majority on the council. Although, having said that, um, the SNP did beat Labour in the popular vote in 2012, again, the last time the local elections were fought in Scotland. Uh, and, but having done that, Labour nonetheless won four, it's now five councils because of their sort of what were then seen as their, you know, very strong heartland areas. And the likelihood is, again, Labour will lose some seats, not a disastrous number I suspect to the SNP who will pick up but you may see um, the SNP actually winning control of some councils uh, in Scotland there are several councils like Clackmannanshire where they're only a seat or two away from an overall majority but of course for them the big prize is Glasgow but um, that the electoral system may make that difficult for them. Mm. And I guess final question from me. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier in the um, in the episode that obviously local elections are very different beasts to general elections, both in terms of voting behaviour and the types of things that people are talking about. And of course, every council isn't up every time. But, um, so what do you think we can learn from local election results, I guess specifically the ones coming up, but more generally as well. Um, and what can we learn from them, and what can that tell us about the wider political landscape? Well, there was, there's a um, very distinguished pair of academics who sort of studied local government long before we did, John Stewart and George Jones, who used to get very cross with us in the early days by saying, these are local elections, right? And they were right in a way. You always can identify councils that will go against the national swing because there's some issue over parking or some planning controversy or whatever it might happen to be. And those issues are sufficiently salient in that locality that they determine how people vote. And it's got nothing to do with the national 
trend. But on the whole, on the whole, they do local elections do not predict what is going to happen at a general election, but they do show the way in which the tide is moving for the different parties. And that's why the Conservatives there in government, they can kind of brush off whatever happens, and they're also very successful at doing that. But I think for the other three major parties in England, for, for Labour, the Lib Dems and UKIP, what these local elections will show, they'll show the flow of the tide, and it will be the flow of the tide, if it's negative as it looks likely to be, that will worry people in Labour yet further. If it's positive as it looks likely to be for the Liberal Democrats, that will give them encouragement that they are now bouncing back off the bottom, and there is a role from them, um, again, building from the local level as they did 30 years ago, and it will reignite the kind of conversations you were talking about earlier as far as UKIP is concerned to say, you know, what is the point of UKIP if they do as badly as we think they might? Colin Rawlings, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Karen. So that was Colin Rawlings there from the University of Plymouth. A big thanks to him for his insight into uh, the local elections that are coming up in May. Certainly seems like the Liberal Democrats' revival is on course, the hashtag Lib Dem fight back. But I guess we'll see in May if that really does uh, manifest itself in the local elections. Now for the second part of the podcast, the final sort of 10 minutes or so, I'm joined by fellow podcaster Leo Barassi to go through the latest uh, Polling Matters Opinion survey. Leo, welcome to the show again. Hi, Kieran. So we had our first test with Rob last week on Skype, which seemed to go well. Hopefully this does uh, too. Um, so let's move on uh, to, to this week's Polling Matters Opinion poll. As I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, one of the things that we've been interested in this week is looking at the compromises that people are prepared to make for Brexit. And one of the ways that we did that was we asked um, we asked a nationally representative survey, uh, in your opinion, if the following were consequences of the UK leaving the EU in practice, would Brexit still be worth it or not? And we gave them a series of nine statements. Um, I won't read them all out, but they were around issues like more money for the NHS, the idea of a recession, um, Britain no longer have access to the single market, uh, immigration, human rights, courts, uh, financial contributions to the budget, also Ireland and Scotland issues uh, as well. And we asked simply, uh, would Brexit be worth it on a five point scale? So definitely or probably still worth it, definitely or probably not, and then obviously don't know. Um, and the idea behind this survey was not necessarily to show that people are turning against it or what would definitely reverse the referendum result in a in, in a, a second referendum, but really just to get a good indication as to what are the issues that matter. And I guess I'll call out some of the key results here, Leah, and get your get your reaction. So I think the the simplest way to do this is to sort of look at what do people think would uh, mean that Brexit was not worth it. Um, and the top the top ones might surprise you. So the number one, 60% saying that Brexit would not be worth it if this happened, was the UK government continues to make financial contributions to the EU budget. Now, there were a number of other issues that were close to this. So 58% said that it would uh, Brexit would not be worth it if uh, EU courts continued to have jurisdiction over some UK laws. 56% said there would, um, Brexit would not be worth it if there was no significant reduction in EU immigration into the UK. 55% said not worth it if there was a recession with significant job losses. And 54% said uh, it would not be worth it if there was no extra money for the NHS or other public services. So those were the measures that got a majority of Brits saying yeah, Brexit would no longer be worth it uh, in, in those instances. And there were four other statements that we'll come to later which did not get a majority say that. But 
Before we go into that, Leo, just wanted to get your reaction on some of those numbers. I think if you'd asked me a year ago what I would have said was going to be the number one if Britain did vote to leave, it would have been very much immigration. Um, so in a way, perhaps it's surprising to me that it hasn't come out higher. Um, but on the other hand, I think what this is reflecting is the issue that's beginning to develop of the UK potentially having to pay some kind of exit fee uh, or make some kind of ongoing contribution. And I think it's it's just worth sort of pausing on the wording that this is talking about continues to make financial contributions to the EU budget, um, which I suspect it would be a bit different if the government is able to phrase it as uh, makes a one off paying the bill kind of thing. There's something about the ongoingness of contributions that I could see people seeing that as just unfair. We've left the club. Why do we have to carry on paying for its running? Uh, so I suspect there might be something to, to do with how exactly that is presented by the government. Yes, I mean, it, it, it struck me, um, that struck me as well, that immigration didn't necessarily come out as the overwhelmingly um, most important. But this issue is around this issue around court jurisdiction over UK laws is interesting as well, isn't it? Although I do wonder sometimes how much in practice people are really going to get animated about that. Although I suppose some conservative backbenchers will, won't they? Yeah, and I mean it's it's a tough one because it's going to be insanely complicated when it when there starts being question of uh, of. Uh, quality, quality of goods and regulation of products and and so on. So, I mean, that's uh, going to be uh, insanely difficult to uh, uh, to get out of entirely. But I, again, it feels like it's sort of in the in the same category as as what I was just saying about the um, the ongoing contributions. That I could really see a lot of people feeling and a, a strong argument developing around it of we've left the club, why are we still subject to the rules? So it's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a simple and quite, um, sort of, I mean, quite, quite a logically clear, powerful argument um, uh, to, to argue against it um, with the complexities and the subtleties of trade rules isn't going to be easy to do. On the rules of the club, I mean, um, the financial payment thing is interesting, as you mentioned um, I guess it's how it's positioned. But there has been some other polling, hasn't there, by ICM, which has l tried to put specific figures uh, to this as well, hasn't there? Yeah, so um, there's an ICM poll that The Guardian have been writing up that um, has looked about whether a deal would be acceptable or not if it had exit fees attached to it. Um, and it asked about 3 billion, 10 billion and 20 billion exit fees. Now, I mean, for what it's worth, that's obviously a different thing from ongoing financial contributions. So in a way, you might expect there to be uh, slightly more willingness to, to go along with that. Um, there wasn't particularly. So um, the 3 billion, the lowest of the fees was the one that people obviously were um, uh, had the least problem with. But even that was... Uh, only 33% saying it was acceptable and 46% saying it was not acceptable. For what it's worth, I think there is a issue with the phrasing and the setup of those questions that if you put those three numbers together, 3 billion, 10 billion and 20 billion, well, uh, obviously people are not going to like 20 billion. If if the numbers had been 500 million, 1 billion and 3 billion, well, surprise, surprise, people were not going to like the 3 billion. I mean, these are numbers that people 
completely understandably can't get their head around in practice. I mean, what does it mean for their everyday life when it's in the in the billions? So I'd be a bit sceptical about what it says for the for the absolute numbers. But I think what we can take is that even a one-off fee, people are resisting. So, I mean, let's move on to some of the other statements where there seem to be more of an acceptance of compromise in those areas. And I must admit, I, I sort of laugh, but I mean, it is quite serious. So there were four other areas that didn't really seem to produce much Brexit regret. Now, a couple of them are, are fairly uncontroversial. So Britain no longer has unrestricted access to the European single market. 40% said Brexit would still be worth it if that was the case. 42% said it wouldn't. So you know, divisive, but not strong opposition uh, like there were with those other statements that I mentioned. Likewise, the government does not repeal the Human Rights Act. Now, that, was, that is something that will certainly get elements of the right-wing press quite animated and elements of the Conservative Party quite animated, so it's still relevant. But 35% said uh, Brexit would be worth it if that was the case. 37% said it would, uh, it would not be. But the ones that really jumped out at me were related to um, Ireland and Scotland. So 32% said if there was a hard border constructed between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, 32% said Brexit um, would be worth it. Uh, 42% said not worth it. So not a ringing, I mean, okay, opposition, sure, but not a ringing sort of uh, uh, concern there, not a majority saying um, that Brexit would no longer be worth it under those circumstances. But the really striking finding was related to Scotland. 44% said that Brexit would still be worth it if Scotland uh, was to vote uh, for independence from the United Kingdom. 35% said it would not be. So the only statement in our nine statements that has a net positive, if you like, or, or a net plus, uh, is, the, uh, is, is the issue of Scottish independence. For, for unionists, that will be really worrying, won't it? Yeah, I think uh, what we are beginning to see with that, that Scotland uh, figure there is the development of a feeling um, probably particularly amongst uh, Remainers and I think, uh, sorry, amongst Leavers. And I think this is, this is borne out by the crosstabs um, in England that uh, Scotland is just beginning to get a bit tiresome with its, its demands for independence. Just to interject there briefly to put numbers to that 69% of Leave voters say that Brexit would still be worth it if Scotland voted for independence. Only 14% said it wouldn't. Um, and 60% of Conservative voters st- stay the same. So I guess any um, uh, Scottish nationalists that listen to this, I don't know if they do, but if they do, um, that will only add weight to their argument that, frankly, the Conservative Conservative England doesn't really care about Scotland. Yeah, and uh, it would be a uh, cynical but uh, perhaps ultimately successful play on on the SNP and Sturgeon's part if they uh, started uh, thinking about ways to further antagonise uh, the Conservative right who uh, uh, m- might increasingly feel that it would be a perfectly reasonable thing for, for Theresa May to do to, to let the Scots leave because they're just finding them a, a pain. Yeah, yeah. On the, on, the, on the issue of compromise, trying to bring this all together, I mean, I guess one of the things that this poll does is give us a bit of a taster for what really is motivating people and what isn't. But we also tested a hypothetical deal, and we should caveat with this that we have no idea if this is the deal that will be um, delivered, but it's uh, still interesting to try and bring this together. Now, what we did was we asked people to imagine that the Brexit process concludes with the following deal uh, for relations between the UK and the EU. Britain now has full control over immigration policy. Britain has enough access to the European single market to avoid a major economic shock from leaving. Britain um, continues to pay money into the EU budget. 
Britain continues to contribute staff and funding to Europol and to take part in EU-wide research. And we essentially asked whether that deal was acceptable or not on a five-point scale. And what we found was that 57% uh, said that the deal was acceptable, 29% uh, said that it wasn't. Um, now, I should stress that on the acceptable point, 11% said it was completely acceptable, whereas 46% said it was mostly acceptable. However, that still is relevant because 18% said it was mostly unacceptable and 11% said it was completely unacceptable. So the mostly versus completely is probably relevant there to how people are answering that question. But it does seem to suggest that when you put all this together, there is a degree of pragmatism about the British public and how they view this. Yeah, and it's worth adding to that, that even uh, even in that, 54% of leavers were saying that uh, the deal was acceptable. So I think, I mean, this is this is really interesting, but I mean, it's one, one of the interesting things about it is that this has just contradicted or this contradicts the questions that we were just looking at. So um, we just saw that. Um, uh, what was it? 60% think that Brexit wouldn't be worth it if the UK paid contributions to the EU budget. Well, here we have a deal in which Britain's paying contributions to the EU budget and we're getting a uh, comfortable majority saying that they think that the deal would be acceptable. So uh, there's clearly a lot of packaging uh, that, that can be done here, that you can take any of these things in isolation and people will say that they're totally unacceptable. So if the deal is is utterly framed around, well, Britain is paying to the EU and we've left and and that sort of front and centre and, and what people hear about it, well, it seems like it's it's unacceptable. But if that can be contextualised um, along with what else the UK is getting out of it, then it seems that even those even those numbers that made it look like uh, essentially, I, I mean, it seems inevitable that the UK is going to have to have to pay something. And given that we've just seen that most people think that's unacceptable, you might think that that means that any kind of deal is totally unacceptable. Well, what we're seeing here is if you package it up along with uh, with the other things that, that people are looking for, then you can you can swing a majority behind it, but it's a difficult balancing act to package those up in the ways that uh, people are uh, are hearing the benefits mm. along with the costs. And I suppose there's a couple of practicalities that go into all of this. One is how does the conservative press um, react to you know some of these the blow by blow of the um, Brexit negotiations? We've already seen the stuff about Spain in the last week i mean we, we, let's hope that we haven't got two years of that coming so that's gonna that's obviously going to um uh, be the prism through which many of the public uh, view the, the brexit deal in the end having said that um if the prime minister comes to parliament with a deal it's quite hard to it, it would take a lot of guts for parliament to reject it wouldn't it so i mean i guess, I guess practically speaking um yes the court of public opinion will be important but Theresa may still feels like she's in she's in the driving seat to bring something to parliament and to get that passed yeah i mean that that sort of feels instinctively right i suppose uh a thing a a cautionary tale is cameron's uh renegotiation of, of britain's membership supposedly ahead ahead of the the referendum which was something that was sort of uh, analogous to this in that it was uh a a compromise deal that that brought some things that were um in the direction of what leavers wanted um whilst giving ground on, on some others um he might reasonably 
have expected to come back and people will say, well, we were kind of on the fence and this this is uh, a good deal that improves things, so let's go with it. Well, he didn't get that. Um, I mean, perhaps Theresa May shouldn't be so confident that uh, that she would that she won't get the same treatment if she came back with this kind of uh, compromise. Yeah, certainly high stakes in the next couple of years. Uh, Leo Barassi, thanks for your time. Thank you. So that was fellow podcaster Leo Barassi. As ever, a big thanks to um, Leo for his help. And you may be getting uh, used to Leo a bit more in the next couple of weeks. I'm off on my holidays um, in, uh, going to South Africa, actually, on safari, which should be a lot of fun. Um, so I won't be around for the next two weeks uh, of Polling Matters. But I'm hoping that um, a combination of Leo and Rob, who are, as you know, regular uh, contributors to the show, will make sure that uh, Polling Matters continues in my absence. Who knows? It will probably be something of an improvement. So I do keep an eye out on social media for those of you that follow us there on Twitter and Facebook uh, and so on. And we'll be making announcements about what's going to be going on for Polling Matters over the Easter period um, during that time. But that is all we've got time for for this week's um, politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. Hope you enjoyed this week's show. The music you're about to hear is um, uh, Happy Days by Ian Holmes, licensed under a Creative Commons. And as mentioned, I'll be off for the next couple of weeks, but you'll be in uh, safe hands uh, with Leo and Rob in that time. So as ever, if you uh, like what you hear, please do share episodes on social media, whether that's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Tell your friends about us. Really, um, anything you can do to help get our name out there uh, really helps. Um, But that's all we've got time for, as I've mentioned. So thanks as ever for listening and see you in a couple of weeks.